We're going to be looking at a number of the one another statements, and there's so many of them all throughout the New Testament, and Paul uses them a lot as well. We only have time for four because there's only four Sundays in February. <laughs> See how this works? So four Sundays in February, so we're going to look at forgive one another, serve one another, accept one another, encourage one another. This is what it means to build community together and to support one another in this time. Paul's heart, when he wrote these letters, his heart was that the message of Jesus would be lived out in these new communities of faith, and that those communities in turn would transform the world. That's the vision of the church. I, I think it's easy for us to lose sight of that vision when we get caught in the nitty-gritty of church life. The deeper sometimes you are in leadership, the harder it is to maintain this kind of vision. We get bogged down with, you know, uh, budgets and spending and reining spending in and, and finding new donors. That's what it comes down to in the church sometimes these days, and it becomes a distraction. Or, or we get worried about having enough volunteers or worried about the building, and all these are legitimate things that we need to take care of. But sometimes the deeper we go in leadership, the more we forget that this beautiful vision is set before us for the church. That we are meant to practice community in here so that we might bless the world around us with the hope of the gospel. That's what these one another statements are all about. Even when Paul talks about heaven, and he talks about heaven a lot, he doesn't mention hell. He mentions the wrath of God sometimes, but he doesn't actually mention hell, but he talks about heaven. But when he talks about heaven, it's not with a kind of escapist mentality. He actually talks about heaven in such a way that it should make a difference to how we live life now. That's his point. That our contemplation of heaven, the contemplation of eternity, is to reorient our values so that we are operating according to eternal values, not according to the values that we see around us in the world. And so that's what he's doing in this letter as well, as we've read in the passage. So he wrote this letter to Colossae, to this very real church in a very real place, a very real group of people, and sometimes we forget that. But he wrote it even while he was in prison, and he wrote it actually at great expense. We send messages so easily today, don't we? Uh, yesterday, uh, Christy and I were up at the New Horizon Mall. I don't know if you've ever been to New Horizon. It's up near Cross Iron Mills. And we were there for a motorcycle show, just to kind of get us going for the season. At the very same time, one of my daughters and her boyfriend were at the Rallycross event, this race at the Stampede Ground, and they're checking out all the racing there. At the very same time, another daughter and her boyfriend were out at Ghost Lake actually racing cars around the frozen lake. We all, I guess, had a need for speed yesterday, and we were pursuing it in different directions. But the beautiful thing was, we all got to stay in touch, right? And so I counted, actually, just this morning, 30 messages that I had received from my daughters in about a three-hour period, right? Just saying, hey, we're there, we're, we're, we're happy to, to be here, or here's a picture of so-and-so, and what's for dinner tonight, and all those kind of important things. But it's so fascinating to see how easily we send these messages. So sometimes it's easy for us to forget 
how difficult it was in the time of Paul and how costly it was to put these letters together and to send these messages and how important it was to deliver them in the right way at the right time. There's um, a gentleman, he's a historian. He took Paul's letter to the Romans, which is word for word about the longest letter that Paul wrote. And he calculated the cost of producing that letter. And I've mentioned this before to some of you. You know, when you, when you hire the scribe to do the writing and you assemble a team and you get the papyrus and you get the ink and you get everything together, all sometimes while he was in prison. But with Romans, he got all that together and then had to send it with someone. And that person had to journey all the way and then read and explain the letter to the congregation. And this gentleman, this historian, figures it would have cost the equivalent of $3,000 Canadian to send one letter. We thought postage was high today. Isn't that incredible? So you see how these letters were so valuable, so well-preserved, because they were costly. That's how much Paul wanted to invest in community. That's how important these things were for the church to get it right because the gospel and the reputation of the gospel was at stake. Paul sent uh, the letter to the Romans with a trusted co-worker. Her name was Phoebe and Phoebe was actually listed as a deacon in the church and as a letter carrier, she doesn't just drop it off in the mailbox and walk away. She would actually probably have to read the letter to the congregation and explain some of the background. And Phoebe was probably a wealthy woman as well, and so she was a benefactor, maybe even contributed to the cost. So it's a fascinating journey. Well, in Colossians, this letter was sent with Tychicus or Tychicus, Depends how itchy you feel at the time. But Tychicus, uh, we'll come to him later, later on, and he was an important part of delivering this letter uh, to the Colossians. In fact, in Colossians 4 and 16, it says this, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. And that's what we're doing still today, 2,000 years later. We're reading one another's letters. And I think that's a beautiful thing, that we realize this has been preserved for us. Well, as, as Paul assembled the team and wrote to the church in Colossae, he was concerned about two really critical things. There's two great pressures on the church, one from outside and one from inside. The pressure from outside, we could uh, characterize it as relativism either a moral relativism or a religious relativism. Everything is relative to the culture around them, right? And so in Greek culture, you had multiple gods. So Jesus comes along, well, let's add Jesus into the mix. And it's all just according to the culture and the shifts and the, and the changes in culture. And that's part of the pressure that was coming onto the church. How do you maintain the gospel, maintain this unique calling in the face of this kind of cultural pressure? But the other pressure was coming from within. The early church, the uh, people that uh, populated the early church, were mostly Jewish believers in Jesus. And the Jewish believers in Jesus felt sometimes that they had priority place in the church. They're the ones that were the inheritors of the promises that come through the Old Testament scriptures. And sometimes these people wanted to demand that these Gentiles, these unclean Gentile dogs, kind of cleaned up their act 
when they were about to come into the church. So they wanted them to observe certain food laws, and they wanted them to observe the Sabbath, and they wanted them to get circumcised. That would have been, you know, for a lot of people, no go. And so this was what the Jewish people inside the church were putting pressure on. So you have relativism outside, and you have legalism inside, and Paul says it's going to split the church apart. And so he addresses both by saying this, stay focused on Jesus. <laughs> stay focused on Jesus, because in Jesus we find truth. And in Jesus, we find freedom. And that's why he says in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on the earthly things. Don't get so fixated on the troubles and the chaos that's around us. Keep our minds fixed on Jesus. And that's Paul's uh, encouragement to the church in Colossae but also to you and me, even today. So Paul was interested in seeing this radical new community form for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the world, in fact. A new way of life together. In fact, I would go so far as to say, Paul was interested in seeing a new creation, a new humanity. We just spent some time in Genesis and talked about the creation of the world, but also the fall of humanity. Now Paul is saying, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have an opportunity to live a different way. Don't live according to the fall. Don't live according to our sin. There were structures that were introduced into humanity because of the sin of humanity. Paul is saying, now we have the resurrection of Jesus, and there's a whole new way of being together. A whole new way that involves freedom and hope and courage and love. And Paul is saying, be that kind of community, be that new humanity. So here's three radical things, really quickly, that make this new community different from what Paul saw in society around him. First of all, and we've already mentioned this, it had a different focus. There's a phrase, there's so many good phrases in the passage Joel's read for us, but one of the phrases is this, Paul loves it, Christ is your life. Christ is your life. Jesus is your life. A friend of mine uh, passed away last week, and he was a good friend, amazing guy. We've been journeying with him for last, it feels like last couple years, as he's been battling cancer. And just quite suddenly, it took him. We didn't expect it, to be quite honest. And uh, Bill uh, was an amazing guy. He was a bass player. That's why I love the bass players, because Bill was a bass player. And we could say of Bill that music was his life. That was part of who he was. He also loved to travel. He was always somewhere exotic, it seemed. And we could say travel is his life. Uh, he loved his kids, and he loved good food, and he loved, he was just so, such a passionate guy, and we could say all those things were his life. But ultimately, what I'd say of Bill is Jesus was his life. That's what his life was characterized by. Paul said the same thing. I live for Jesus. Paul lived for a lot of things. He was passionate about a lot of things. But ultimately, his priority was this. I live for Jesus. That's what he wanted this community to live for. Here at Bonavista Baptist, one of our top priorities, our top values, is a passion for Christ. 
And we say that for a reason, because that needs to be the identity statement of this community, that we are passionate about Jesus, and we're passionate about sharing him with the world in need. So that's the radical difference that Paul was calling these people to. Of all the things that you do in life, of all the good things that you do in life, of all the blessings that God has given you, be passionate about Jesus. Christ is your life. Here's a a second thing. Paul said this community should be shaped by a different ethic, a different way of being in the world. And he sums this up by basically saying, you all need to change your clothes. (laughs) This is interesting when you read it, especially in the King James, or you read it in NIV, there's a lot of clothes changing. Take off those clothes and put on some other clothes all throughout uh, the, uh, the passage. What's going on here? Well, years ago, and I've shared this with some of you, years ago, and it seems like a long time ago, I used to be involved in residential framing carpentry. So I worked on the site and I worked with crews. And especially when I was first married, I would come home from the the work site. And if it was a muddy day and we're putting in a foundation, I'd be covered in in oil and mud and sweat and blood and whatever else was was on me. And I would come to the door and Christine would say, no. First, strip. And I'd be like, as a newlywed man, that's the words to, you know, music to your ears. But no, she meant, do not enter this house with those clothes on. It's not appropriate. It's not happening. You need to change. And so even the girls sometimes remember me coming in just in whatever was underneath my jeans uh, because my clothes were so filthy. Well, when Paul talks about this laying off of certain things and putting on of other things, he has an interesting thing in mind, and that is baptism. It's kind of the old school, original way of doing baptism. I'm glad we don't do this anymore, but they used to actually strip down. Now, some people say that they went totally buck naked. Others say they went down to their skivvies. But whatever it was, there was this laying off of clothes and then entering into the waters of baptism, coming up the other side to receive new garments. And Paul says that image is meant to resonate with us when we talk about what it means to live together in community. Put off those old clothes. Old clothes like sexual immorality, impurity, and lust. They don't belong here. Don't let them in the house. Put off old clothes like evil desires and greed. It doesn't belong here, right? Strip them off at the door. Or what about the old clothes like anger and rage and malicious behavior, slander and dirty language? It doesn't belong here. Strip those clothes off. Leave them at the door. Instead, clothe yourself with what? Tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's the clothing of the new community. I'm well aware that as we enter the next few months that the elders have designed a series of conversations for us, and some of those conversations are going to be difficult. If we bring old clothes to those conversations, it's going to make it impossible. If we bring old clothes of anger and rage or slander, it's going to be impossible for us to have conversations. I invite us all to bring those new clothes of tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience 
as we journey together, because that's how we share life together. That's the invitation of the gospel as we journey together in community. So a different focus and a different ethic, but here's probably the most radical thing mentioned in the passage about how this new community, this new humanity, was to operate differently from the society around Paul at the time, and that is, this new community was to have a different composition, to be made up and mixed differently. I think today even, we still live in a culture that is known for segregation. That was certainly the time of Paul. Certainly we've seen it in different parts of our history. We can, we can name different parts of history where segregation became very, very key. Even as we think of this month as Black History Month, we can point to times in the not-too-distant past where segregation was the norm. Even when my father-in-law went down to Louisville, Kentucky in order to do his uh, seminary training, they still had black entrances and black drinking fountains and all of this. So segregation has been part of our experience even in you know, recent history, maybe even now. The community of those who are shaped by the gospel was always meant to be different. It was always meant to be different. In Paul's times, as I mentioned, uh, the Jewish Christians would look down on the Gentile Greek Christians. But the Greek Christians would turn around and they would look down on the barbarians. Those barbarians. That was the Celtic tribes, you know, that eventually went to Scotland and stuff. Those barbarians. They didn't speak Greek. And then the, even the barbarians, they would look down on a group called the Scythians. They're the worst, right? And imagine you get them all in one, in one community together. The tension that would arise in the segregated community. And Paul says, no, that's not the way that God is calling us to be together. That's not the way God is calling us to encourage one another. We are all equal in Christ. This is a barrier-free community. <laughs> and that's difficult for us to imagine because the culture around us demands such segregation, demands us to take our side, to dig our trenches, and to battle it out. So our side wins, right? In verse 11 of the passage that was read, Paul says this. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Paul believed in this, this, this uh, projection of the gospel into this new community so much. In Galatians, he said it again. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. How radical is that? That Paul just smashes those ethnic and social and gender barriers. And we find that so evident in Paul. That was his vision of the new community. It was difficult for them to live it out. It was difficult then. It's still difficult now. But that's Paul's vision because of the gospel of Jesus. And that's what we're called to as well. Well, at the heart of this radical community is what? Is love. It says in the passage, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. It's kind of like after you get your outer cloak on, there's this one piece of garment that just ties it all together. And that's love. There's one thing that binds it all together. And the key expression, says Paul, of that love is what? Forgiveness. 
learning to forgive one another. This new community has already experienced the forgiveness of God and now needs to extend that experience to others starting right at home, right with the community of the church. Paul says this in verse 13. Bear with each other. This is the NIV. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Now, the reason we read it today in the New Living Translation is because that idea of bearing with one another can be misunderstood. Bearing with one another, when I hear it, it's like, oh, I'll put up with them if I have to, Doug, right? I just, sorry, I I look that way when I say these things. You know, I'll grin and bear it. He's driving me crazy, but you know, he's a brother in Jesus. But that's not what the passage is saying. I actually like the New Living Translation that says this. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Make room for the mistakes of others. Make room for one another's faults because we all actually mess up from time to time, don't we? Road rage is one of the concerns that has been listed even during our prayer time that when we gathered here, just this increasing anger that's spilling over into violence even in our own communities. But I also have to admit that sometimes when I drive the Deerfoot, I feel that myself, right? As you drive and, and someone has very clearly made a mistake and they left it too late to merge and suddenly they want to get in front of you and you're like, no, not a chance, Right? And you, you hug up to the bumper of the next person in front of you, and you don't let them in. I don't do that. <laughs> Often. Christine does. No, I, you didn't hear that. But what does that serve? What purpose does that serve? Actually, better for the person that's made the mistake, better for me, better for the whole traffic is just make room. Just, just zipper in, people, zipper as you go. And, it, and the whole traffic, it, it moves more smoothly, doesn't it? It helps all of us. I, I, that image came to mind when I read this. Make allowance for each other's faults. If we want this community to move together and move forward in the direction that God has taken us, zipper in, people. Like, just allow, allow one another and recognize the faults of one another and make room. Now, the, the difficult thing here is... Well, how does that guy keep getting away with it, right? Because one mistake is fine, but then he makes another one and another one. And what I have to say to myself is, okay, I'll let you in, but I'm keeping my distance from you. And sometimes we have to do that, right? We just can't engage in those kind of ways. So forgiveness comes into this because it says not only make allowance for each other's faults, but forgive anyone who offends you. That's where the rubber meets the road in the real sense of the word isn't it? So forgiveness is essential to community, but it's so, so tricky. And I think it's tricky because we've been taught wrong about forgiveness. I've been taught, I don't know about you, but growing up, the phrase was forgive and forget. And I have to say, that's impossible. It's impossible. But not only that, it's not healthy. It's not right. I don't think we're meant to forget. I think especially for people who have been victims of abuse or, or wrongdoing that has been very significant. Uh, to forget is not only impossible, but it, it's not wise. 
Sometimes we have to remember and we have to keep our distance and we have to engage in a different way with the people around us. So what does forgiveness look like then? What does it feel like? How do we forgive one another? Because even when we forgive the other, the other person might still have consequences to their actions, right? So what does it look like? Well, I'd say this, that God, God doesn't forget. Not in the strictest sense. Anytime that it mentions that God forgets our sins, and I don't think it mentions it actually explicitly like that too often, but anything like that really means this, that God chooses not to hold our sins against us. He chooses not to see our identity through our sinful actions. He chooses not to, you know, keep it in reserve so that one time when we, we slip up again, he says, yeah, see, that's who you really are. And he chucks it out at us. God doesn't hold our sins against us. He doesn't identify us according to our sins or treat us according to our sins. And I think that's the model for forgiveness with one another too. That we don't treat each other according to our past that we don't identify the other according to the sins of the past, and that we don't store up all these sins to be lobbed at the other person when we're in the argument together, husbands and wives, I'm talking to you, right? And so that's something that's really important for us to get. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting, but it means that we're not constantly treating others according to their past failures, because we recognize that we have failed too. When I'm on the road, sometimes I forget to merge in time and I just hope that someone else will let me in, right? That's how community is built. I love uh, what this friend of mine who wanted to remain anonymous, I asked him if I could use his quote. He said, sure, just don't say it's me. I don't know why, maybe it's heresy, we'll see. He says this, Forgiveness is not just about saying the words. It's an active process in which you make a conscious decision to let go of negative feelings, whether the person deserves it or not. As you release the anger, resentment, and hostility, you begin to feel empathy and compassion and sometimes even affection for the person who has wronged you. Do you hear that same language that Paul is using? As you release the anger, the resentment, hostilities, you strip off those old clothes, those old smelly rags. It leaves room for you to be clothed by God's spirit in empathy, compassion, sometimes even affection for the person who has wronged you. This is the power of forgiveness. Okay, as we wrap up today, I just want to mention this. For Paul, forgiveness wasn't just a theory And we find out about that in this letter to the Colossians. If you turn right to the end of the letter, you find, remember that guy, Tychicus? Tychicus? Uh, Great name. We don't use it too often. We don't use it often enough, I think, uh, today. But uh, Tychicus, he uh, was sent with this letter, and Paul says this. He will give you a full report about how I'm getting along. He is a beloved brother and faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. So far, so good, right? Then he says, I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. We're like, okay, so what? Onesimus is a fascinating story. And we find out his story in the little tiny letter called Philemon. 
because Philemon was a fairly wealthy leader in the church at Colossae. And Philemon had a slave who ran away. And his slave's name was Onesimus. Onesimus, I think, maybe stole something from his master and then booked it for the hills. Onesimus ends up running into Paul and accepting the gospel of Jesus. And Paul treats him then as a brother, but then sends him back into the community that he has wronged. But as he sends them back, he says, make room for him. Don't receive him back as a slave. Receive him back as a brother. That's the transformation of forgiveness. That's the unique and high calling of the church to behave differently from the world around of it. And, and Paul even says, if you need restitution, I'll pay it. Because it's not really that important. Remember, keep your eyes focused on Jesus and on the eternal things. But this, this relationship is valuable. Receive Onesimus in community. So, essential to Paul's vision of new communities of faith that would transform the world is this practice of forgiving one another. And I mean practice, because I don't think I'm very good at it yet. We need to keep forgiving, right? And that's how we live out the gospel of peace. I believe that there's a place for the church still in the world. Lots of people don't. Lots of people have just given up on the church. I believe that the church has a unique calling and mission still in the world. And I believe that this church, Bonavista, still has a unique calling in this community and in the city of Calgary. But we'll only reach that calling if we learn to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Each and every one of us know in our hearts some of the uh, darkness and some of the sin that we've never revealed to others. And yet you haven't turned away from us. Instead, again and again, you just reach out your hand and you embrace us. You bring us in, you invite us in, all because of your son, Jesus. Thank you for taking the initiative and sending him. Thank you that he died on the cross so that we might be forgiven. But thank you so much that he rose again so that we might have new life in him. Help us to live in the reality of the resurrection, not in the reality of the fall anymore. Help us to be resurrection communities that bring life in this place and around the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.